0: Hello, welcome to the Eurogamer podcast, a series in which I, Bertie, find interesting people from the world of games to talk to. Episodes are published every two weeks, and remember, subscribers to the Eurogamer website get this first. Today, I'm joined by someone I like to think of as video game writing royalty. Uh, she broke into the scene in 2014 with Inkle's acclaimed narrative adventure, 80 Days, a game for which uh, you wrote something like 750,000 words, which is crazy. I don't think I've written that many words in my in my life. It was a game that was nominated uh, for a BAFTA uh, for Best Story and eventually um, won you a UK Writers Guild Award. Um, I think. um, and since then you've gone on from strength to strength, contributing to projects like Sunless Sea, Horizon Zero Dawn, Boyfriend Dungeon, and more recently, in fact, very recently because it came out yesterday, Sable. Welcome Meg Giant. Did I pronounce your surname
1: correctly? Uh, yeah, I think you know, so these days I go by Megna if that's okay., Megner, that <laughs> yeah. is
0: a okay. I was gonna say Thank that you. but I thought well, maybe I should go with no, Meg.
1: no, it's all it's all good. Megner. okay.
0: okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a real pleasure um, to have you here, and I hope my introduction was okay. And I didn't attribute games that you haven't touched or
1: something like that. <laughs> no, it's entirely accurate. Though I'm not, I'm yes. not sure about royalty. <laughs> I'm oh, quite well. anti-monarchical. I would say so. <laughs> I'm... Okay,
0: no, I, that's that sounds good. So, how are you? Um, Yesterday, with Sable coming out, um, for people who are watching this, uh, maybe at a later date, Mm -hmm. uh, Sable came out on 23rd of September. How was that for you?
1: I mean, you know, kind of amazing. I think, you know, I happened to be up at at midnight when it was sort of technically released. And, you know, I think think there's something, I just felt such a wave of pride in, in the team and, you know, in everyone's work. I came on the project, I think, in 2017. Okay. So it's been quite some time and a long, a long journey, you know. And and this is ShedWorks' first game. This is their debut, Mm. and I think, you know, I can't get over that part of it because I think it's such a, it's such a statement of who they are and kind of a really bold vision for you know, Greg and Dan of Shedworks, who are, you know, so new in the industry. And I, I I just couldn't be, I couldn't be happier for them, honestly.
0: Do you remember what it was like when they, when they pitched you the game? Because yeah. this is their first game.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I don't know, they presumably came out of nowhere.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, so I think we had a meeting somewhere in North London, probably. And it was Greg and Dan. And, you know, they just, they told me about this this incredible world uh, that they'd, they'd thought up, they, they already had, you know, I think a 60 page document with all of these biomes and well building and and kind of, you know, beautiful monument, you know, Greg Kithiotis is a, an architect and, and from that background. So there's this beautiful kind of visual imagination and and architectural imagination in the game. And I always love working with people who can bring something outside of the games industry as well. I think, you know, that's, that's okay. such an interesting kind of skill set and a different perspective to have, and you know the the graphics, um, this sort of Mobius like art style, very you know, striking. It's so it's so striking. You know, I've, I've seen nothing else like it in games, and I think what was so exciting to me was that they, you know, obviously I think Breath of the Wild came up as a as a kind of comparison, terrifying to hear, especially from you know, a team making their first game.
0: And you're but nodding along, like, going,
1: oh. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, sure, you're going to make Breath of the Wild. You know, but, you know, they had this amazing vision and they wanted to make a game that had no combat in it. And I think that immediately, you know, got me so, so excited. This, this idea of, yeah, we're going to take on the open world, but we're going to take out, you know, one of the core ways in which I think traditional games, games traditionally give the player pleasure and satisfaction which mm. is combat and a sense of progress and and they were like let's do something outside of that and they really believed in that idea and, and i think i do too so you know they, they completely kind of sold me on it
0: how long did it take you to be sold on it were you literally sold on it there and then did you think as they were telling you this i'm in yeah or did I it take so. some time okay no I,
1: I think so and and i think they very cleverly i think they'd been speaking to Michelle Zorna, who's japanese breakfast you know, a bona fide rock star, you know, just a brilliant musician and and creative. And I think they'd just spoken to her um, a couple of weeks ago and she'd agreed to come on the project. And, you know, and they played me some of her music and I I could really see it, you know, the combination of of kind of the visuals, this, you know, and, and they really, I think that was also a sign that they, to me, that they wanted to bring on board, you know, this really talented team. The idea of working with Michelle was just, you know, extraordinary. And I thought, you know, the visuals in combination with the music. And yeah, I think I I almost kind of felt like that is in itself something extraordinary. And if we Mm. can build on that, you know, how amazing would that be? Where do you begin
0: with a project like that? So they've told you what the game is and presumably they've given you a 60 page uh, something (laughs) or other or brief. How do you, what happens next for you? Do you have to kind of switch your mind frame into a different gear i don't know how do you prepare yourself to make to create conjure a kind of fiction in a game
1: oh okay so i think before i get into that question i should probably really make clear my role on the project as well you know i I think so i did world building and narrative design but um kim and david from sweet baby came in and so they did all of the the content and the writing right so i really want to make sure to kind of big up uh, Kim Belair and David's contrib you know their 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 role in this and, and okay. all of the words that you see in the game uh, are theirs. And, and they're fabulous and you know they're so charming and, and kind of and bring so much the, life to they are
0: to it. irresistible almost mm. so much yeah i know they mentioned Zelda to you yeah in the um in the interview or the the pitch mm-hmm. But it's so reminiscent of Zelda, there's kind of an yeah. irresistible optimism uh, yeah. when characters are speaking. that You can't help but be charmed, pulled in by them. You can't yeah. help but be sucked into that world. So that, that is lovely. So your task then as, a, mm-hmm. as the narrative designer and world builder, what do yeah. you decide? What, what's in your hands, as it
1: were? So, I mean, you know, again, as with all games, I think are a a confluence of multiple different visions and and ideas and and it's in the kind of interstices between that, that, you know, somehow they all pull together and and you make something and it launches if you're lucky. But I, you know, so massively, this is, you know, a hugely collaborative project. And and I, you know, I'm I'm really happy to talk about like the small role that I played on it, but I think, so one of the, the most interesting things initially on the project was they came to me and said, Everyone's going to be wearing masks because, of course, you know, if, if you know much about um, the kind of resourcing and, and, and technical uh, limitations of games, facial animation is, is kind of one of the <laughs> hardest things to do. And this is a two man indie team that wants to make an open world game. And so I think they made a very, very pragmatic and very clever you know, decision mm. that everyone would be wearing masks. And I, I can't quite remember how developed this idea of the gliding was before i came on board but i think that was our first you know i think that was really m- my first steps into the project was why is everyone masked can we create a society in which that makes sense and i think for me it was really important that the protagonist and sable was not doing this completely unique thing you know i think i think for me one of the one of the tropes that i really like to upend is this idea of the hero and the singular okay. chosen one and so in Sable, the gliding is a journey that everyone goes on. And yes, it does confer specific powers and, and abilities, like the ability to swap your mask, because everyone else has chosen their mask and, and kind of has to inhabit it and reside within it. But on the gliding, it's this kind of playful, exploratory time. But I think it was really important for me that, um, to kind of infuse that idea of the gliding is a well-known thing. Mm. Everyone knows, you know, you're not... Of course, it's a special experience for you, but it's not unique. Um, You know, and I think that's, uh, you know, and I love that that's something that's being kind of picked up on in in, in the reviews. And I think that helps give it a distinctive feeling from kind of these world-saving, you know, epic narratives. I think what I love about Sable is that it really does bring all of those, all of that, you know, importance and kind of uh, grandeur to quite a small... Story of a young girl, kind of finding her place in the world, just as everybody else does, kind of.
0: Yeah, it's it's striking. I haven't had much time to play it, but I mm-hmm. uh, was playing it for an hour or two yesterday, and just floating around and talking to some of the the village leader as I'm preparing yeah. to go on my gliding mission. Mm-hmm. I love how it places you within a world and society, like you say, the people who have gone through this yeah. already, and it doesn't feel weird. You don't necessarily feel like you're special, although obviously you are because you're the main character yeah so have you seen when you're staying up till midnight and waiting for the game (laughs) to release i suppose there's always that funny crossover moment where nothing really happens at midnight it's not like you're Mm -hmm. at a video game store and people suddenly open the doors and go here's your game yeah what's the kind of mix of emotions you have are you scrolling around trying to see what people have said i mean you know the review embargo was a little bit before I think I can't remember exactly when but what do you do you read what people say and how does that make you feel was there were there things that you were watching for
1: um I think you know I suspect that almost everyone reads some of their reviews um whether they like to admit it or not or whatever relationship you have with them um yeah I, I feel like I'm not very I'm not I'm not masochistic. I think there are a lot of people who have a quite a masochistic relationship with their reviews. I think kind of being in this industry for a while, you really have to develop a kind of robust sense of your own work and, you know, your own sense of meaning. And it's wonderful when, you know, I think the best part of reading a really good review is when it shows you something about your work that you hadn't maybe articulated yourself, or it kind of illuminates some part of it, or it's it makes an observation that feels very, um, very true.
0: Have you read anything and, that's done that for Sable?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think so Nat Clayton's review in PC Gamer, I thought was, I, I love so many parts of it. I particularly loved, I think there's this moment where Nat talks about, you know, Sable isn't saving the world. She's just on the gap year of a lifetime. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, that's absolutely the vibe. And, you know, I love that that's kind of being picked up on. I think the review, um, paste the review in Pace magazine, and I've just it's, it's the name of the review has fallen out of my brain, but I'm sure you can kind of insert that back in, Grace. Yeah, yeah. Um, I forgot her last name. Um, yeah, you know, I think, and I think the Pace magazine review kind of picked up on. I think you know as well. It's it's really pleasurable as a creator when a review. It's Grace
0: Benfell, just for Thank for you. reference.
1: Yeah, thank you. I think it's it's wonderful when a review demonstrates that it's kind of read your work sensitively and really engaged with it. And in, in, and I think even if it has criticisms at that point, I think that can actually be, that's still a great, you know, it's it's kind of a great honor to have someone really play your game and, and, and kind of approach your work and take it seriously. You know, I think it, I still find that extraordinarily kind of wonderful as an experience and it's one that I feel really grateful for even for criticism as well when you know I feel like it's coming from a place of, of good faith um the Pace magazine review I think was really wonderful because it kind of picked up on some of the other kind of fundamentals of, of I guess narrative design in the world that that I was really keen to kind of infuse into stable well, which is that yes this is a world that you know, Sable and the story of Sable is taking place in a world that is in the ruins of capitalism and colonialism, but the clans of Sable and its society and its, nomad, you know, its nomadic societies and structures uh, are built on different logics than capitalism and colonialism. You know, this isn't, you know, and so, so I think that kind of, I think that's a really powerful and important alternative vision to present to us now in a world that is so kind of hyper-capitalistic and 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 almost the idea that we could value different things or people could be motivated by different desires and pleasures um seems quite difficult to imagine
0: yes so are there things that you were perhaps hoping to see that you haven't seen in people's reactions
1: no i don't i don't think um I, you know, I don't think I can, I could, I could say anything like that. And and as well, you know, it's so early as well, you know, this is kind of day one reactions. Um, And I'm really curious to see kind of what people are saying about the game, you know, even in a few months time or six months or a year. And, uh, you know, I realize you know, the games industry is so much about the now and the moment, and (laughs) it's so easy for things to be forgotten. But I think there's, There's something really important about giving things enough time and space to have reflection upon them, you know, and and of course, you know, I think we all know the hot take can be really great and fun and relevant. But, you know, a a kind of a discourse or or a kind of critical landscape that is only hot takes is, you know, I think is kind of incomplete. So,
0: yeah, yeah, a bit empty. Yeah. What do you do now with the memory of working on Sable? Is it almost like a, a quest journal in your head where it's a completed quest and it kind of falls off the bottom of the page now and you move on? Or does it kind of stay alive? How does that work?
1: You know, I think as again, you know, I my I've, I kind of wrapped my role on the project uh, a little while ago. so. And I think that's kind of fairly common. Like often, I think depending on your role on the project, you might have your period of intense work at a completely different time to kind of the rest of the team. And obviously, Greg and Dan have, and you know, the folks at Raw Fury and, and everything have been absolutely, I think, head down and completely manic for the last. I don't even want to say how long. <laughs> you know, I probably since they began the game. Uh, but whereas for me, I've you know, I've had a lot of time of of kind of reflection and and so for me now there's almost a process of you know i'm really looking forward to to kind of playing it in this in this kind of final beautiful version and and almost experiencing it a little from from the outside which is a great you know opportunity i think and and one that can really only happen because someone else wrote the words because (laughs) you know 80 days is still such a i think it took me about four years to kind of play it and be like i've read this you know, it's it's actually not bad as opposed to, oh my god, why is there a semicolon there? And, you know, hmm, I think I this, I lingered at this point a little bit too long. Um, you know. <laughs> so I think being able to actually enjoy it as um as a piece of work, I think is what I'm looking forward to about Sable.
0: Is that something that happens with all your work if you write the words, is it you just can't look at it for a while?
1: Yeah, I think it's you know, I, yeah, <laughs> I think to, well, you can't, I think you can't look at it for a while without um, still wanting to iterate upon it because that's where your brain is, right? You're still, you haven't managed to completely like let go <laughs> and you still, you you know, and, and see it as something that's already done and part of you still wants to tinker.
0: I know the feeling, only we have a, a CMS where I can do that. I can just tinker a little bit.
1: Dangerous dangerous
0: I don't really do that for people listening (laughs) so
1: only when I make
0: mistakes no I don't for legal reasons you don't do that I've I've put myself down a rabbit hole now oh quick let's change the topic okay so um let's go back in time a little bit I want to hear about a bit about your, how you grew up um, and how you ended up where you are now, where those passions began um, and what set you on that course, as it were. Now from reading around, I understand Mm -hmm. that you moved around a fair bit growing up. I I read something about that. You lived in a few different countries and you went to something like 12 different schools.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah.
0: Why, why did you move around so
1: much? Do you know, it kept burning them down. Uh, Well, not at all. As one does. There you go. See, look, I covered for your CMS things. Yes. So no one's going to remember that now. Uh, no, my, um, I would say my parents moved moved around a lot, and they were they're their doctors. And so, you know, in the initial stages of qualification, you kind of have to do year long rotations. Ah. So. You know, they they did that kind of all through my childhood. We moved country. Uh, so, quite did a you bit.
0: grow up in Bangalore? Or did uh, were you born in Bangalore? No,
1: I was actually born in Saudi Arabia, but right, we moved okay. when I was about a year old. My, my parents were immigrants there, and and you know, working as doctors. But then we moved back to I think India. Then we moved back to we moved to England, and I spent my childhood here. Oh, uh, did but you? again, yeah, whereabouts
0: in England were you?
1: Oh, God, all over the place. So everywhere from like Truro to Welling Garden City ah. to, because again, you know, moving, it was wherever my parents yeah. could get jobs together because uh, they worked for the NHS. Um, yeah, so there we went. Um. And then we, I moved back to India, kind of, uh, I would say maybe I was nine, something like okay. that. Okay,
0: presumably you'd been visiting India yeah. a bit in the years. Okay, so it wasn't an, a, a massive culture shock when you got there.
1: It, it wasn't, but you know, I I remember, I, you know, it was, it was it was very different. I I think it's I now look it. back in, I'm very grateful for that because I very much, you know, I am I'm, I'm, I'm Indian, but I, I'm certainly a little bit British. <laughs> um, but I I kind of see myself as as really part of both cultures.
0: If, yeah, of course.
1: Which which I think is really nice, you know, that I I kind of had that, you know, adolescence and teenagerhood in in India, which is almost kind of a another really important period that shapes you. Um yeah and then so I moved back to the UK for university. Yes. and I've been here since.
0: And so as you were growing up mm. I read somewhere that you used to play uh video games with your father. Well
1: Yeah.
0: Were video games as far as you can remember always a thing in your life? Or do you remember the moment they yeah. came in?
1: Um you know probably the first time we played a game must have been when I, I think my dad got like an old DOS machine from one of okay. his friends, you know, one of those ones where you had to put in like 17 different floppies in various orders. And, and I think I must've been something like six maybe. And of course I got completely obsessed with it and was the only person who could like boot it up in the house. <laughs> I think they had some very basic kind of DOS games on, on there. And I, do you remember I, I, any of them? Do you know, I I feel like I could, I think there's probably a narrow range. So if you showed me like screenshots of them, my brain would probably go, right, that one. But, I wish um... I had
0: some screenshots now to show you. <laughs> if I had one of like granny's garden, I bet it was like...
1: <laughs> right, you know, but, but I think that was my, probably my first real, real experience. I mean, you know, things like even Minesweeper, stuff like that, if I really think about it, or like Snake and all of these things, you know, very basic. But um, yeah, and I think from there onwards... We got a, I think the next thing was getting a console, like the Super Nintendo is the one that I really remember. And, and was a big part of my childhood.
0: Do you remember any particular games on Super Nintendo that really mm. captivated you, that really spoke to you, grabbed you?
1: Do you know um, Parodius, funnily enough? Okay. Like, I don't know if you've ever played that, but it, I, I, I have this distinct memory of one of the levels, which is this gigantic belly dancing woman, And you don't really see her face for most of it. And she's kind of, you you kind of have to learn the rhythm of her stamping her foot to kind of make it through. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure it was like like a, a, a bisexual awakening for me. I think that may have been a little bit later. But like, if I look back, I'm like, that did make a bit of an impression. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the colors and, and, you know, I think it was a bit like nothing else. I mean, obviously, I played all of the, you know, Mario. It was Street Fighter was the big social one for me. I think it was Street Fighter 2 Turbo. And that was the one that was just easy to play with your friends. And,
0: you know, Did Chun-Li. you have a favorite character?
1: Chun-Li, obviously. You know, like, I was probably a seven-year-old girl. So, yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't love Chun-Li? And Blanka. That was my second favorite Okay. Life. You know the electrocution that was pretty. Bad.
0: Because you could hammer the button like this.
1: Yeah, exactly right. It didn't require a lot of a lot of um, skill, and I think you know that was one of the things for me. Skill was never a huge part of it. I was never very good at any of these games, yeah. and that wasn't a big deal. It was really more about like a, a social experience, really.
0: And I read that. Um, I think when you did eventually move uh, to India, a mm. lot of your friends around you didn't have consoles because yeah. they were quite they expensive just weren't available there, there. Uh, or not available. Yeah, and so that was yeah, you know, quite a big thing. So your friends would, like you say, yeah. around Street Fighter would gather around yeah. you and 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 come and play. Yeah,
1: you know, which was just such a joy. So I guess I always had that that link between you know games as this kind of social experience, also the idea that they were gendered I think really didn't really occur to me I mean but at the same time I should say I was very separate from you know I didn't read any of the gaming magazines or Mm. uh you know newspaper you know all of that stuff it was a very and I probably didn't talk about it at school either you know come to think of it but so I, I think I I sometimes when I meet people in the industry now like who have had and particularly I think men in the industry right but but you know lots of people they've had that kind of I've been reading I don't know Games Master since I was five years old or whatever and and that's that's kind of an experience I, I don't really have.
0: Do you remember where writing started to feature in your life or started to become perhaps a passion? of yours
1: hmm. I think I always as, as long as I can remember you know I loved reading and I was the kind of kid who who really could like just lose themselves for hours with a book um I was pretty voracious so I think it felt pretty natural I mean I've always I wrote short stories I wrote poetry I bored my parents stiff having to read all of my juvenile poetry now they... I
0: read somewhere sorry to interrupt oh. you but no, I read no. I read oh, somewhere that you wrote some Harry Potter fan fiction <gasps>
1: yeah no god i can't believe i actually yeah no i did and i think it's not anything that's too embarrassing these days i think you know what did you
0: write i have to ask what was the story that you wrote or stories
1: oh i wrote i wrote plenty but i really wasn't interested in like shipping and i I was i was like one of those probably a really annoying person in the harry potter fandom but i wrote like non-romantic stories that were all about world building and for me i think you know there were lots of people i think like me in fandom, people who kind of read the books and almost kind of had a critique of the world, okay. um, or or f- a feeling of some, you know there's some pieces missing in this this story that we're being given. And what did you think was missing? Fill in those gaps. Well, a I thought the stories were very much from like I thought Harry's very Gryffindor perspective. I wasn't entirely sure about it. It kind of, you know, I, I'm pretty sure. Like, and the, the magical world, as it stands, you know, a deeply kind of human supremacist place. Mm. I think a lot of, you know, her. I mean, you know, God, it's, I, I almost this almost feels like a big time throwback because I haven't really thought about Harry Potter in a long time, especially because of you know J.K. Yeah. Rowling unfortunately, you know, outing herself as a massive transphobe. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, I think the books just seem. But, you know, I guess there was, I think there's a lot of regressive thinking in the books, you know, like um, uh, Harry's position as a chosen one, as kind of extraordinarily special, you know, yes, he's orphaned, and he's in this cupboard under the stairs. And, but, you know, Dudley, his cousin is, is fat, and his fatness is also somehow presented as part Mm. of his kind of evil. And Harry also then becomes fabulously wealthy. And, you know, so there's a lot of, yeah. I think it sounds can. like
0: within that though there's there's a sort of sense of I don't know I might have got this wrong but a mm-hmm. kind of sense of justice within you <laughs> and that if someone you know hasn't said something right or you disagree with something you feel the urge to speak about that which is a wonderful trait and and something you know that we'll come on to later and mm-hmm. um, other subjects as well Do, is that fair I get
1: yeah I, I think that I think that's that's probably <laughs> that's probably fair to say I don't know if I'd thought about my fanfic writing <laughs> in that context. But I guess in some ways, you know, thinking, I, I think, you know, thinking deeply about the consequences of the way in which people are portrayed or, or spoken about or kind of systems and structures act, I think probably, yeah, it's a long-standing, you know.
0: So your writing builds as a passion um, until, as you say, mm-hmm. you eventually came to the UK to university yeah um to oxford very prestigious um you're obviously good at what you do did you know did you know then you wanted to be a writer or was it just something that you were still very interested
1: in um i think i always imagined myself at some point becoming a writer i think it was the the question was whether you know I think I imagined having some kind of other career first and then I would either like write in my special, I, I think when I, if I had a fantasy of being, you know, in my forties or fifties, I was like probably, you know, writing novels in a garret somewhere, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's a nice fantasy. So what was, mm. what was Oxford like?
1: Um, I personally, you know, I, I, I love my time there, but I, I think I would say that with a great, sense of caveat and, uh, you know, and, and an acknowledgement of, I think, you know, it is, it is a kind of, it is a, the locus of a huge amount of like, particularly British, like elitism and and, and mm. kind of, you know, intellectual elitism and supremacy. And, and, you know, I did meet some people who are definitely, were definitely in training to be masters of the universe, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Skeletor
0: um, do you mean?
1: Or... <laughs> Boris Johnson you know <laughs> that's the sort of person you meet there and um you know and there's there's a great deal of of I think you know wealth entitlement uh you know there there's I, I think I, I felt quite naive when I discovered that you know everyone in in the drama scene you know who is successful had all g- gone to like two schools
0: yes because you all have uh, a theatrical uh, uh, inclination, um, from from what I can read, which is great. I you know I think that's brilliant. Um,
1: <laughs> I I directed plays at university, but I don't know whether that. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, maybe you're underselling it slightly because you directed the Oxford Review as you um, did, which is this prestigious or historically, I don't know, prestigious <laughs> is the right word, but it's a known comedy group that has yeah, produced comedy. some uh sketch comedy that has produced some where some big names have come from in the past or yeah. they have that in their background people like maggie smith who is yeah. wonderful armando iannucci who wrote alan partridge in the day i mean
1: armando iannucci yeah. i'm i'm happy to ever be named in the same breath as Armando yeah. iannucci. i'll take that yeah
0: um stuart lee who apparently was one of your one of your heroes as well he was um,
1: how god you really have done the reading
0: you know i'm well thank you yes i have yeah. uh, <laughs> um and I read that you went to the Edinburgh Fringe with them I did and that was an eye-opening experience
1: (laughs) what did I say about it
0: apparently some of them um weren't too hot on cleaning up their own mess oh
1: no do you know I'm gonna get in so much trouble for talking about (laughs) this again because I actually ended up reconnecting with a friend of mine after I told a story about an onion in uh in that interview with Sam Horty and he texted me to be like hi <laughs> yeah <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> how are you and um yeah <laughs> so I'm, I'm deeply aware that they're probably on the lookout for me spilling all these secrets they're all like you know grown-ups now who are completely confident and and competent <laughs>
0: i mean if I think back to how I was when I was not- eighteen nineteen you know
1: yeah God it's
0: the, it's the same thing uh pretty much i know
1: ex- i mean, if if really not being able to clean up after yourself is the, the most yeah. irresp- is the, you know is the most irresponsible thing that you did at that age, i think you're doing pretty well,
0: yeah, so oxford uh, and your work with the the comedy rev- uh mm-hmm. the the oxford review, sorry after all of this do, you come out of university and from what I understand. Uh, after a while you find a job at the BBC
1: yeah I went to film school in the middle
0: oh okay of
1: that um, yeah so I, I kind of studied practical filmmaking and, and like made a couple of short films so my last short film was a web series oh and, and what, uh, what
0: was your web series called and what, what, what was it about <laughs> my
1: web series was called it was called Unreal City obviously
0: based around the, the engine Unreal
1: no ah, that would have been <laughs> very interesting I think maybe more interesting than, than what I might, I'm not sure that it was, would have
0: been interesting.
1: I don't know. You know, there's uh, they certainly have some interesting, you know, military contracts at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's definitely a story there. Um, well,
0: in that, that sense, it would have been, yes.
1: Yeah. Um, no, so it was, I think this was, you know, at, at that moment in time, this must have been maybe 2008, 2009. Okay. So we were in, particularly here in the UK, um, there was this kind of transmedia sort of boom, and you had things like, um, you know, alternate reality games, and I love bees and perplex city and, and things like that. Um, you know, and and, and I think uh, I made Unreal City very much in that kind of atmosphere of thinking, you know, so, so if you if, uh, you know, I think hopefully it's not online now, but <laughs> it's one of those things that it's like, it's got kind of little, little bits of video, and then audio logs, and then, you know, bits of like, you know photoshopped documents that you have to trawl through and like you can go blind probably like because you're trying to read all of this time so it's one of those things that is there's so many kind of different channels of information it's kind of overwhelming and 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 like needlessly intricate but that was very much what we were doing at the time
0: but it's this kind of desire to create things which is Mm. is really nice you know this kind of work um yeah coming out of you. So you start working for the BBC, Mm -hmm. and you're working commissioning games? Is that
1: right? That's kind of, yeah, I ended up working for the team that that supported games. And so the games Uh, would be commissioned probably by the relevant kind of TV show that they were um, associated with. But I started off working in, in television and audiences on um, Dave Gorman's Genius, which is a comedy show. Okay. Wow. <laughs> and so I did, I did community and, and that, was, that was really fantastic. I mean, it was in the era where I was like, all right, we're going to set up a Twitter account. And they were like, right, so how much money do you need? <laughs> uh, and I was just like, right, okay, great. <laughs> what can I say? I mean, obviously, I said it's free, it's fine, um, you know. And, and this idea of, you know, so I was kind of. I think that was like at the beginning of that opening up of like social media. So that kind of dates dates that. But yeah, so then then I kind of moved on to the games grid, and you know, we supported other games. We helped people from broadcast understand the games landscape and start commissioning in a you know more kind of efficient and and relevant way and um and we also you know I think I was also part of commissioning quite a lot of prototypes and playful prototypes around like knowledge and learning and you know we, we very much had at the bbc a kind of you know a pedagogical approach um there's there's actual kind of learning products and um you know so that was that was I think uh, really interesting it was around that period of gamification I, okay. I don't know yeah so everything yeah. was being gamified at that point and so really my job was to try and convince people that they didn't need to gamify things that was really what I did with Mr. Ah people.
0: okay so there were some changes at the BBC from what I've read and hmm. uh, the job kind of came to an end rather yeah. abruptly which forced you it was quite a pivotal moment actually because it it yeah. ends you back with your parents, from what I've read, yeah. and it gives you some time to mm-hmm. write. Uh, yeah. And what you write is an interactive story project called Samsara. Yeah, I think I've pronounced that correctly. You have. Um, I tried to play this earlier, incidentally, right. but I don't know what happened. But the it's an interactive thing and yeah. you have three choices at the beginning. Yeah. And when I clicked on a choice, it took me through to a page and I couldn't do anything else.
1: I think story nexus might be deprecated now. So uh, I, I, I okay. you know, God, I really hope I have all of that content somewhere or someone does, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think it's, I don't think it's playable anymore because I think fail better has kind of scaled down that part of their operation. That
0: would make so sense. So. But Samsara, hmm. can you explain to me what Samsara was? It, w- it would be better in your words.
1: Right, so samsara was a game of courtly intrigue and dreamwalking set in, at the, the, the kind of turning point of the British East India Company's uh, role in India, you know, going from, uh, you know, as a, as a kind of exploitative corporation to the British Raj, with a much more kind of imperial focus. So uh, historians generally locate that around 1757, which is the year of the the Battle of Palashir or the Battle of Plassey, where Robert Clive defeats the forces of the Nawab of Bengal, who is at the time one of the last few independent rulers of India who had not become a vassal of the British East India Company. So, you know, it's it's this kind of very rich and redolent historical moment. And it's a game where I got to, I think, you know, I, I would say begin some of the... Some of the same approach that I think you know you can see in 80 Days, which is um, a historical game that is deeply researched and very kind of sensitive to the to the history and 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 particularly focused around maybe untold stories and and voices from from the margins, you know, not the history of, of dominant mm. culture, uh, but with a fantastical edge um, and an infusion of you know in this case the ability to walk in people's dreams, which is also kind of dictated by, you know, a very quite a stringent like fantastical logic as well. And we use that fantasy to, um, you know, I think be able to tell a story that's for me personally, a lot less, you know, I think it was just so depressing the idea that I, you know, you're, you're kind of playing this out. And then at the end, the British empire takes over and, you know, I know historically, okay. So that's the beginning of like another Several hundred years of, you know, exploitation and depredation. And and so I think, you know, the, the ability to kind of think about an alternate to that history felt like this very valuable and interesting thing to do. And I think I really wanted to make a game about British colonialism in India from the perspective of Indians in a very fundamental way.
0: Yeah. Do you get a sense when you're writing this at the time that people will notice that things are about to change or is it it's just a project you're working on?
1: No, I think I I really, I really just wrote it for myself. And, um, you know, fail better at the time we're running this competition. So if you kind of made a game in in the story Nexus system, uh, you, you know, you'd be entered into a competition where you'd be judged by Mike Laidlaw and Susan Arendt. And, you know, Mike and, and Susan, just, you know, fantastic people I was a huge fan of Bioware and Dragon Age so for me that's I, the you correct
0: know... answer I'm a big right. Dragon Age fan as well so.
1: <laughs> absolutely I mean you know I've got to say like I'm a, I'm a big Mass Effect fan as well um you know but uh, I think for me it was just the idea of all right like you know it's the idea that Mike and Susan would be reading my work felt like okay that's that's a, a good motivation to kind of get this done
0: and they loved it they did yeah so did you win that competition
1: i did yeah you
0: did and this also this is the stepping stone that gets you noticed by uh john ingold and joseph Humphreys um, yeah. at Inkle. yeah um and what leads to them i think pitching you an idea to turn jules jules verne's novel the idea set out yeah. in jules verne's novel uh into a game yeah how does that come about what how Do you remember them coming up to talk to you? And what did you think when they talked to you? What was their pitch?
1: So I, I have to say, I already knew John and Joe. And John, I was familiar with John's work. So, you know, my uh, more than even video games, I think my real background was in interactive fiction. And okay. I, you know, that's that's kind of a small, really thriving community, um, producing so much kind of interesting work over the, you know, over that period of time and and even today obviously but i'd loved john's um parser game called all roads i mean amongst all of his other work it's all great uh yeah and so i think we we kind of ended up talking about that and and i was really interested in what Inkle were doing you know particularly i think it was such an interesting period for text games and and if was breaking out of a completely hobbyist space and there was also like more and more room for commercial interactive fiction which i thought was you know uh incredibly exciting and, and obviously as a writer who likes to write prose um you know those are those are spaces that 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 i really love so yeah i think it was after some Sarah john sent me an email and and kind of said oh you know we we chatted a little and he was like oh i, I you know i think some of the design choices you've made here are quite interesting. And and I think Sorcery had come out and I wrote, I wrote John and Joe like an email about the the combat system. And I was like, oh my God, like, what did you do here? This is completely bonkers. Um, You know, it, it's, it's beautiful, but like I could see the kind of, you know, the procedural design behind it. And I was just like, this is, this must've taken, this must've taken so long. And I think that's very characteristic of Inkle's work and, and, and John's approach, you know, he's, He's really happy to solve a hard problem <laughs> uh, and do it in a way that is, I you know I think would seem like way too much work for anybody else, but he's he's absolutely kind of you know willing to do that, and you know that's that's why what he does is great. Um, yeah, and I think I I think I think that was around when they said then said you know okay um, let's meet up and we've got something to pitch you. And then I think it was largely because you know, Samsara was so historically researched and as excited as they were about 80 Days of the Game, and, you know, they had quite a lot of the fundamental structures of the game that they wanted to make. John hates doing historical research,
0: <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> you know, and I think in a very real way, that was really why they just thought, all right, like Meg clearly, <laughs> Megna doesn't mind it. So maybe there's some, some symbiosis there because until then, um, you know, Inkle hadn't really worked with any writers outside. Yeah. John had written, done, you know, the writing for games. So it was a bit of a new experience for them as well.
0: So when they pitched, presumably, were you familiar with the novel at this time, at yeah. this point? They? Yeah. Yeah. So when they pitched this to you, I'm sure, uh, I, I know that you're not thrilled with a lot of the themes and the things yeah. that are touched on in the book. So when they go, look, we're making an 80 yeah. days game. Are you like, you know, know your audience guys, come on, why, why are <laughs> you...
1: No, because, you know, like, I'm a huge fan of of Jules Verne. You know, I have a critique, um, but that I don't think, you know, a, a critique is necessarily a barrier to enjoyment. I, you know, I, mm. I think that's, that's honestly, that's how I enjoy things. Um, and I, you know, and I think there's a lot in, there's a lot to be said for, I think my initial response was, okay, right, let's, that's interesting. What do, would we need to do to make that story, which was written, you know, in the Victorian era, in, yeah. in, you know, in the 18, in 1872, what, we can't do the same things that Jules Verne is doing, uh, because that was exciting in 1872. What is the, you know, 2014 version of that story? And I think, you know, John and Joe were very open to the idea of my take on it. And they had, they also, I think, at that meeting presented this idea, okay, we want to do this with steampunk. Ah, uh, okay, than one so way. the
0: steampunk comes from them. Yeah. Yes. Okay
1: yeah absolutely you know and um, fantastical inventions yeah and then I think we had that meeting I was intrigued and then I think I went away for a few weeks and I wrote a um I, d- I did a writing test essentially and I wrote Egypt to Yalet and I think a balloon journey somewhere I don't think they I, I doubt they they made it into the final game at all but yeah, so I kind of, you know, and I invented, I think, uh, a, a mechanical camel race. And I remember, I think I sent it to them and I was like, all right, okay. I can't just wait around for an answer. I've got to go take a walk or something. And then I think John or Joe emailed me and is like, mechanical camels. Yes, like we're in. Um, you know, and I think the, kind of the rest is history really from there.
0: I spoke to uh, John and Joseph recently. Did uh, you? To talk about their, their work and a bit like this, actually. Yeah. And one of the things they talked about, they said making Heaven's Vault. They got it was a long project, and they weren't. They liked the game obviously, and they liked the work they did. But I, I'm not sure if it was a process they wanted to necessarily go back to. Hmm. But when they were talking about the kind of process they wanted to go back to, yeah. 80 days and working with you was what they specifically said. So they really enjoyed that collaboration. Oh,
1: I think I, it remains just an incredible collaboration. In some ways, I kind of feel like. They really spoiled me for the rest of the industry because it was such a—you know—that was my first professional job in the industry, Um, and it was amazing that it had so much success. But but kind of previous to then, it was such a joy collaborating with the both of them, and you know, yeah. Was the writing shared? Yeah. So John, I think John did about a third of it. So I, you know, I think I I led on the the kind of world and the invention, but um, I think about six months in, I think I, I wrote. I, you know I, I just did my own thing for about six months while while John was on other systems and, and kind of doing narrative design. and then John started writing content as well. But I think you know it's important to also say that, that the structure of of 80 days is very much something done in in collaboration. like the writing is it had you know so responsive to the way in which, you know, the, the day structure is organized and, and, and all of the stuff that, that kind of John and Joe brought to the team from their years, like, you know, decade of experience making these kinds of games.
0: What did you think recently, or when you eventually went back to play 80 days, all of those, those few years later, or four or five years later or something, what did you think of it then? What, what was your appreciation of your work of the game? What thoughts did you have?
1: I think that, so I played it on the switch. Okay. Actually, um, which was really beautiful, and and again, I think sort of easier to appreciate for me because it almost feels like a, a really an evolved form of the game. You know, I, I think the Switch port of 80 Days is absolutely beautiful and, and worth playing, even if you you've played the game before uh, and a beautiful way to play it. So, uh, you know, I think it was it was Christmas and I played it with my family and we all did like different voices and um, you know, that was very that was very joyful. I think you know more than more than playing it myself, it's, um, I still get emails about it from people or, you know, DMS, which is really wonderful.
0: What do do they say? What kind of thing?
1: Um, uh, my favorite ones are ones from people who talk about, you know, long car journeys, like playing it with their children. Um, my friend Amal. Uh, El Mohtar, who's, whose work also very much inspired, you know, my my approach to steampunk in the game. Um, she sent me pictures of, like, you know, her on the Baltic ferry in the game while <laughs> with a sign at the Baltic ferry. I mean, that's a great genre of 80 days feedback, personally. Um, someone told me that by, in playing the game, it inspired them the next time they were on holiday to actually go up and talk to strangers. And they had... Wow and it, and it kind of changed their approach to traveling which i i thought was just you know utterly utterly moving really i've had some i i think i'd say i've been really really lucky on that front and and i'm so honored that people share that kind of stuff with me and you know i think a couple of months ago um this person kind of dm me to say that they'd been playing a lot of this game while their child had been ill in hospital and just having some and you know like the news has been absolutely shocking for the last (laughs) forever um so i think you know that that sense of being in a fundamentally humane world where people are generally i don't know good or at least not evil
0: there's an infectious optimism to the (laughs) world and adventurism yeah Uh, that it it does uh, was that was that you're
1: doing yeah i think um i think so you know obviously the you know van the story of 80 days is an adventure but Mm. i personally i'm not so interested in cynicism like i wouldn't call myself um you know i don't think i'm a utopianist i don't think i'm i'm naive or uh i'm not and i think i want to stay away from this idea of wholesomeness or even hope punk you know i don't think that really <laughs> describes what i'm i've never uh, heard
0: hope punk before oh
1: god well google you'll have lots of fun <laughs> uh and yeah but but i i kind of think you know we live in quite a, a cynical and, and and dark world and I I'm not sure, Um, you know, I think it's very easy to seem as though you're being incredibly, you know, clever and and it it can often, I think, sit in the place of real analysis to to just kind of, I think, indulge in some of the 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 worst impulses or or present this very nihilistic view of the world. Um, Hmm. You know, but I think, you know, see, like something like Disco Elysium, I think handles this beautifully, right? Like, mm. I think there's a real purposefulness and its cynicism is part of the charm. But it, you know, that it's very thoughtful about how it deploys all of that. But for me personally, I I really felt like I really wanted to create a world in which, you know, Two never actually does anything too evil you know in the traditional kind of binary of choice that's offered in games you know do i kill mm. the puppy or do i kiss the puppy <laughs> you know and and i just kind of think that's not really where character is and 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 that's kind of a, a world of of extremes that i just yeah. didn't really find all that interesting
0: no it isn't um <laughs> so after 80 days 80 days is is a, is a real turning point Uh, for you because of course you um, you you end up winning an award eventually what's that success like because I was struck recently by an interesting thought it was an Olympian talking Mm. while the Olympics were on about how a gold medal they won really threw them in to a depression I was which I never considered would happen because I'd never thought about it properly success is hard to follow (laughs) I guess so what's that what was that like for you was it I mean it's very validating and you you know all of a sudden it maybe opens yeah. doors but what what was the reality like of of that success for you
1: i think it was awful like i think it's oh. absolutely <laughs> like feeling like um like you're going to be found out that you ah. uh, have, haven't earned your place here um you know i think i think it's it's very i think you know it was complicated for me by also you know being being kind of a, a brown woman and one of the few fewer brown you know we're we're a kind of minority in the industry and I think there's automatically this kind of pressure to be a role model and to have advice for people or you know and and I was still kind of feeling my own way out in the industry and uh you know I think that it was really quite hard to I think what was what's difficult about it is kind of having to get to this place in your head where you are not going to be disappointed if the next piece of work that you do doesn't isn't received in the same way because i think you know we got hugely lucky in the way that 80 days was was received and you know it was it was very it was very praised it was very awarded it was very recognized and all of that is is wonderful but that you know i don't that doesn't always happen even when you've actively done the work and fully deserve it and have produced something beautiful. It's, you know, also a huge dose of luck and being Hmm. at the right place in the right time and just kind of being caught by the zeitgeist. Um, You know, so I think certainly, you know, it requires a certain amount of, of kind of discipline and work to... To get out of that feeling of like expectation and almost entitlement, because that's a really unpleasant way to approach your work. That basically, unless it's an 80 days, it's you know somehow disappointing, and um and the, and it everything else carries that pressure.
0: Do you think you've managed to strike a balance? I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm. It. Um, I still feel that daily in different degrees, but <laughs> have you managed to find your way with it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know it's been. Eighty Days came out in I think twenty fourteen, am I right? Yeah. Yep so, yep. so you know, it's it's been a, a good long while now, and I think that I felt that sort of second album syndrome for for some time but you know there's nothing
0: what did you do next was was it was horizon what came next
1: no I, i i think there were a couple of projects that went nowhere which is i think you know very normal in the games industry but also in some ways you know i think maybe very helpful to go through um because yeah maybe i did have like that build up of expectations and all of that pressure but then when things kind of you know i think i think it's not unusual for a lot of us in this industry to just kind of have lost years where you're like, I swear I worked really hard on several <laughs> things. And yet it kind of seems like uh, nothing has happened and, and I people, can't talk about And
0: anything. people asking you, so you didn't do anything for these years. Yeah, you're like, yeah, I yeah.
1: know. I did a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And actually it was quite emotionally devastating in lots of ways, but thanks. Um, you know,
0: <laughs> because there is a, a tendency as well, talking of success, that those are yeah. the things people then know you for. and then therefore attribute a kind of style to the thing you do and therefore if you're known for that thing other people might then hire you to kind of do that kind of thing yeah and you start to go down a track um, of this thing and they don't know these other things that you've been making which may have been might have been very different uh, to the things you're making now do you ever feel like you're you're being boxed in
1: do you know i think i feel that much more in the context of you know my role Kind of speaking in the industry, or okay, you know, talking good, about my work, or yeah, yeah or as uh, you know, doing any kind of advocacy or or activism. And I think you know that I think there's a real pressure, especially on on marginalized people coming into the industry, where you do get invited to events because they are, do want to check a box. And there does mm. come a point where you really have to learn to say no because they need you more than you need them. But that's, you know, I think, especially as a freelancer and someone new to the industry, you're just kind of you want to take every opportunity and you want to be kind of eager and game. And, and you know, and I think I, you know, I think this will be a very familiar feeling for people who've been in the industry for a long time. But, you know, when when 80 Days came out, mobile games was still, the, you know, it was still at that cusp of can they be taken seriously? And, and I kind of really felt like, There was a a short amount of time where, kind of, the cachet from 80 days would last, and and like the next project needed to happen, or I needed to kind of Mm. get my foot in the door before that happened, and and kind of make a career out of it. But I I do think I had that distinct feeling of almost the, the the pulls that exist in the industry, and almost in some ways, by giving you kind of opportunities as a brown woman. Hmm. what they were almost getting in the way of my own work and my writing and and kind uh. of and craft and what I wanted to do and you know and I've certainly been asked onto projects to provide you know like the diversity angle and and while of course you know anti-colonial work particularly is you know is a deep interest of mine and a passion of mine and and and, and a kind of approach I, I I'm interested in bringing to games you know there's there's a lot outside of what I do that I I almost feel like you know, it's a constant battle to be invited to places and to be able to to find a space to kind of talk about the craft of what I do, as well as it in terms of diversity and inclusion.
0: Because that, that it's not a role, but that position, Mm. um, you're in, I mean, it's not an accident because you knowingly obviously said things and you, you, um, sort of challenged the industry to change, particularly with the IGF. Uh, when you were hosting the IGF Mm. and and, and the speech you gave then but that kicked off a chain of events that sort of kept you in that position I guess kept you
1: Mm.
0: what do you feel about that now do you like that responsibility do you I don't know I um, it's Mm. difficult to talk about but how do you feel about it
1: I I think you know I think you've identified that moment it was it was hosting the IGF awards and, and I think when I got asked to host um you know I think it was a moment that I really sat down with myself and was like, all right, you know, all of this imposter syndrome, all of this this kind of insecurity or, or feeling as though you don't belong. Like, this has to end now because you've been given the, you know, <laughs> this this enormous kind of, you know, platform and in, you know, institutional approval. If that was what you were seeking, you've gained it. And it's almost disrespectful to to kind of not occupy that role now. And I think for me it was very to, to have that kind of visibility and platform, I think it was just hugely important to then subsequently kind of take up the responsibilities that, that came with it. And I don't think I could have really lived with myself if I, you know, so the, initially I wrote, I, I wrote a very, I wrote a different speech. Oh. But then, you know, the, the Christchurch um, attack happened the previous week and um you know i was in i was in america at the time you know working with another company and i just i kind of just i i think being in america it felt you know i don't know there was just something about you know obviously all of the debates around gun culture and and i i think i just stayed up all night and it was just a very disturbing kind of day and i rewrote it um you know and and, uh really credit to to kind of gdc and, and, and simon and everyone on the team they really didn't blink an eye when I mm. you know changed everything up at the at the last minute um but kind of I think subsequently to that I really I guess I felt a sense of a sense of responsibility and and, and a kind of you know it almost it sounds very arrogant to say but I think a kind of a responsibility of kind of leadership whether you whether you sort it or not um you know and 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 I think when you've been placed in a position of at least some, some power, especially as a marginalized person. And when that perspective is so absent, really in the corridors of power, um, I did feel a kind of sense of (laughs) responsibility to, to kind of, you know, speak up for things like, yeah.
0: Do you still feel a responsibility now?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think I, I I think, of course I, I, I certainly do, but you know, I'm also I think that really balances with, um, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to say, speak up publicly and name someone or support people who are doing so. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, all of the, the personal emotional stuff, having to share your, your private life publicly and then the kind of backlash and, you know, these are, these are all, these are all kind of heavy, heavy things. Yeah. And, you know, and I think, I have come to a real place of uh, needing to develop a way to to kind of protect myself and to not allow this sense of responsibility to almost kind of destroy you. Because I do think, you know, not to get too mm, dramatic about it, I guess, but we are living at the confluence of so many kind of, I think, systems and structures that are really built and designed to undermine you, to to make you work harder to to, you know to to um take from you whatever you're willing to give and probably then some and so unless you are kind of actively countering that um and um you know not allowing your own you know i i I just think i think all of these structures take advantage of of all of the best parts of you at times you know a sense of responsibility an ethic of hard work you know um one's feeling of obligation to the team which, you know, I think that also underlies crunch. I think all of these things, you know, the way labor is structured in our industry, it takes, you know, this really wonderful thing, passion that
0: mm.
1: most of us have and, and share and and kind of almost perverts that into exploitation, you know, and so I think I'm deeply aware of, of all of the ways in which all of these systems and structures act and, and uh, you know, I don't, de- I don't run. (laughs) I'm so at the point of nearly using the word self care here. And I really want to use it in a very intentional way that isn't, um, I think the denatured way that it it kind of is used these days, but I I really think it's quite important to have that, that, you know, that separation and and boundaries Mm. as well.
0: You're right. You're talking about it. There's some big things Mm. that you've been through. Um, Mm. do you feel like they've changed you? Have they changed and, and if they have changed you, do you feel like they have changed your work
1: hmm oh that's an interesting question i think they've definitely changed me i think you know the unfortunately i think the experience of uh being at the center of you know a harassment mob is not an unusual one in the industry particularly for women or people who are you know marginalized and at intersections of that um and you know I think women in public life in, in general uh i think you know it's, it's hard to I think one of the things that I really realized being at the center of it the, these last couple of years is just how normalized it is. And, you know, personally, like I, I feel like I have all of these kind of, you know, privileges and supports and, you know, I steady work and, and a home and, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not precarious in so many other ways. And it was still a very, um, a very emotional and obsessed, you know, a re- quite a deeply traumatic kind mm-hmm. of, you know, series of experiences. And I think there's a kind of collective trauma that we all go through in the industry and and i think every time something new happens there's the re-triggering of everyone else who's been through that before um of
0: course yeah
1: you know uh or you know and, and it's not just the people who have actively been through it but the people close to them around them who are supporting them and all you know we we're all part of this this community and and the pain of some of our members is is going to be kind of i think diffused in into the kind of wider body right there's a kind mm. of collective psychic experience of this that that we keep kind of going through you know and I, I think that that there's um you know I think I think I personally feel like I I've emerged I've been kind of tempered by all of it uh I would say I'm I'm a little bit more cynical maybe of people but um you know in a way that I think is I think is is kind of, I think part and parcel of of like what it is to be in this place. I think you learn, you know, I think we all are here and you kind of learn how to survive in this industry and you try not to let it take too much of you at the same time.
0: Yeah, well, I hope, you know, not too cynical because I love, there's an optimism um, I feel about some of the work that I've played, some of the games that, you know, you've made. I don't know if that's specifically you, but I can feel Mm. it. In your games um, and it's infectious so <laughs> let's fast forward up to the present i'm gonna sort of gloss over horizon and falcon age and Sea, okay. and i'm sorry to those games and projects you know they're wonderful particularly falcon age i want to uh, big Aww. up in in that mix yeah but i want to fast forward to now because i'm conscious of time and because mm-hmm. i want to talk about red queens uh,
1: <laughs> a little
0: bit which is your new ish uh, venture with lee alexander and so
1: uh, i uh, I'm going to interrupt you there and say that yes that was that was very much our plan but kind of Ah. pandemic has as it has done for everyone I think thrown everyone's set of priorities and and kind of plans into the air and so you know Lee and I are not going to be uh collaborating on Red Red Queens unfortunately but you know on the plus side uh, I'm sure if you speak to Lee at some point, like she's doing such incredible work and uh super busy <laughs> um and i'm I'm really excited um for her to kind of be able to share some of the stuff she's been up to okay. and uh and I have been working on the next outer game, which is you know the team that made Falcon Age, so yeah,
0: fantastic, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm yeah. just catching up with this. You can see how yeah, slowly yeah, 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 no, the cogs like... turn in my in my mind.
1: <laughs> no, it is. I think, head. you know, yeah, it's very much, um, yeah, I think it was a weird one. We sort of talked about it and we were like, God, should we like actually make an announcement? That almost felt quite weird to do because we didn't quite officially launch, but you know, of course, um, yeah. S-
0: so is this... So you're working with them on a new game. Is this a follow up to Falcon age or something different?
1: No, it's something different. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I can't really say a lot about it. Fine. Um, I can't even tell you the title, unfortunately, but I think, um, if you caught, um, the Annapurna showcase recently, um, ah, they teased okay. a little bit of, of Outer Loop's new game. So I think, I think I can say from there, they're skating in it. Ah. Um, yeah. Hang on. Yeah.
0: Is this the new game by Alex Preston? No, 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 no. I, I, no, no. That's so Heart Machine, is, sorry. That's
1: yeah, beautiful. yeah, yeah. So there's a few skating. We seem to be in a proper kind of 90s revival when it comes to <laughs> skating games. I'm, I'm very intrigued by it.
0: Okay, uh, fantastic. Okay, yeah. um, so, and you are involved as a writer or as a narrative designer, world builder? So
1: so, so both. I mean, this, this game is, I think, less about the world building. So it's it's much more kind of, you know, narrative design and, and writing. I'm, I'm, I'm writing most of this one. Um, yeah, which is very interesting for me.
0: That's exciting. So after all of these years mm-hmm. doing this, yeah. do you still enjoy it?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, um, the work is the part that I love about about this industry. You know, all of the other, like, the activism, the bullshit, the, the having to... You know, like all, all of the the penumbra around it mm. is kind of, I think, what you put up with in order to to do the work. Um, and I do still love it. I think if I didn't if I didn't love it, I don't think I'd be here. You know, probably be be writing that novel in a garret somewhere. <laughs> uh, well, you know, so never don't say give never. up
0: on that idea just yet, because you, know, <laughs> you, <know, laughs> you, know, you know you can still get there
1: yeah exactly you know that's that's my little every time things get a little hard i think i just imagine myself in the garret but i think you know i'm at i'm at a very i have to say i'm at a very you know lucky point in my in my career where i'm able to kind of pick my project and and my collaborators and you know um and still pay my rent and and kind of you know work on things that i find genuinely interesting and, and worthwhile, and you know, and in, in addition to the work, I think it's the people in the industry mm. that really, um really keep me here. You know, I've, I've just I've met some just incredible, I've made some incredible friends, uh, you know, and some wonderful collaborators and colleagues, and I'm I'm always kind of I think amazed by other people's talent. So I think so. Just to go back to Sable a little bit, you know, you were asking me about how it felt, and I think for me, how it really feels is just just kind of getting to be amazed and astounded by other people's talent um, and to kind of feed off of that. I think, you know, that, that was also my experience on on 80 days, you know, and I think I think you can kind of tell when things are going just exactly that right in, in, on a team. And there is something a little bit special and magical. And there's, you know, an enormous amount of doubt and fear and worry and, and you know, all of those things. But there is there is something about working with a great team and when it all comes together.
0: Fantastic. Meghna, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really, really appreciate it. I've just got one final question, which is something that I'm going to ask everyone in this series. And it's really the kind of first thing that comes to your head when I ask. So I'm going to ask you for your first game. Okay. What was your first game?
1: Civilization.
0: Civilization one.
1: Oh. Mm, i think it must have been two actually okay. if i think about it Civ two though Civ three is probably the one i've logged most hours
0: on how many hours
1: oh god hours and hours like n- not even on the same device like I, I you know i've played it on holiday i've yeah completely completely obsessed um <laughs> do you know though, probably if i think about it first it's probably sim tower and okay game. like i you know an, an occasion i would play with my dad he would always win and you know get that choir of angels at the end and and i just keep at
0: this (laughs) do you still play games with your dad
1: do you know i i don't as much um occasionally you know i show him i show him games you know he played assassin's creed i think i'm really looking forward to playing stable i
0: I show him games and assassin's creed was the thing that i just
1: it just, because it's a beautiful world as well. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think he was so interested in spending a lot of time, you know, learning a complex set of mechanics and, and things like that. I think Sable might be one that mm. he might play because, you know, again, that the lack of, of combat
0: and. It's and, quite calm. It's quite really, at your yeah. own pace. It's,
1: you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I think there's something. Yeah, I think that would be, uh, it would be quite fun to, to play with him, I think.
0: Okay. So the next one is mm-hmm. Last Game. What was the last game you played? Oh,
1: um, Fire Emblem Three Houses. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you played it, but I am a huge fan of that. All of that, you know, the, the turn-based strategy. Is this
0: the, this the Switch one?
1: The Switch one, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. I haven't played the Switch one. I played a, a DS one, three DS one. I can't
1: yeah, I think called. I think Three Houses is fantastic. I think I've played a couple of them earlier, and I think they've really kind of all of the mechanics are, are really quite nicely integrated. Um, there's this huge, epic, sprawling story. You know, it's all uh, you know. And, and I think it's one of those ones. I occasionally get into a game where it's like, oh yeah, I'm only I'm only ten hours in, so I've just begun. You know, that yeah. kind of vibe. But um, yeah absolutely got obsessed with it this summer so that's
0: fantastic and the final question Mm -hmm. the biggie Mm -hmm. is best game best game and that can mean whatever you want it to mean
1: oh my gosh gosh that is such (laughs) an interesting one you know huh best game gosh is there such a thing um if i think about something i just return to (sighs) You know, I think there are games for times and for kind of moments in, in your life, mm. you know, but I don't know that there's a singular one, but probably it's something like Civilization. It's one of those, you know, games like that that I probably just return to whenever I want to kind of lose myself in a world.
0: Like a company. But you know, it's
1: Dragon Age 2. I'll be. Dragon Age 2? Someone else who likes
0: Dragon Age 2.
1: Of course. You know, and and it's funny that you say that because every time I talk about Dragon Age 2, everyone's like, oh, yeah, oh, I love that too. And I think it's just a persistent myth. Like someone somewhere has said, oh, Dragon Age 2 is shit. But no one actually thinks that.
0: (laughs) I think it suffers from, I think everyone who plays it can see that it was made in a rush.
1: Oh, the third act is, you know, absolutely has its flaws. And and I think that's, yeah.
0: But there were some, but there were some great things in it. Uh,
1: The best set of companions, I think, you know, I have about 14 or 15 saves and I can usually tell where I am in the overall story just by the conversations that are that are happening. And there's just something just about like wandering through town with just a slightly different set of companions than you usually do. And just hearing them chat away that is kind of, the, yeah it just feels really
0: special i'm so glad you said that you've com- completely made my day uh, yeah. <laughs> i always i also love the time fast forwarding mechanic as well i love to me rpgs are very much about choice and consequence in your actions on an area and being able to see those fast forwarded by like 10 years or however long the gaps so i thought absolutely was a great
1: idea. and i think i remember i think Maybe this is my first talk that I gave at, at GDC, which is which was about you know decentering protagonists and 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 kind of you know giving power and agency to non-player characters. And I think Dragon Age Two does that in such a an interesting way. You know, like Isabella's betrayal isn't dictated by you know how many gifts you give her or whether she <laughs> likes you. I mean, yes, maybe that 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 impacts on whether she can rejoin the party, but you know people uh, do things for their own reasons. And you know Anders as well you know the there's no way to kind of romance him into not blowing up the charge and and i love that that you as the protagonist are uh left in the wreckage of other people's actions and and kind of have to you know the world acts upon you rather than it being this one way of i act upon the world and i think that's a that's quite it's a very interesting thing that that Dragon Age does that not a lot of other AAA games
0: do. That is a very interesting place to leave it. Megna. <laughs> thank you so much for liking Dragon Age 2. No, <laughs> You're you, welcome, s- Bertie. Thank you so much for talking to me. Um, good luck with your new project. We thank will keep, you. Uh, I will keep keen eyes on that for sure. And thanks for all the work that you've done so far with the wonderful places you've taken us in games. And I'm thank sure we will continue to take us in, in games as well.
1: I hope so. This has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. Bye for now.